everybody. Welcome to the History Today podcast, episode nine. I'm here with Katie. Hello again. And today we're doing imperialism, part one. Uh, this is going to be, you know, two part kind of end to quote unquote season one of History in Today. Uh, we're available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker Podcasts, Pocket Casts, a bunch of other ones. Uh, Apple Podcasts soon, hopefully. Knock on wood. Uh, but yeah, this was supposed to be last week, but uh, Katie and I both had our power knocked out for a couple days. Uh, so obviously podcasting wasn't really the top priority, but now we're back. Uh, so how's your week been? Um, it's been good. I'm excited that we can talk about this. I know that we were planning to do this a couple weeks ago, but then we decided that it was going to be a two-part series and or two-part episode instead of a one just one straight-through episode. And so we had to replace it with, I think we talked about federal overreach, but now here we are, and I'm excited to finally get to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm excited too. So we're splitting it up. Uh, today we're going to do kind of the more just top of mind imperialism definition. Just when you, when you hear imperialism and you think of the word empire, obviously Star Wars excluded, uh, <laughs> you, you, know, you think of Britain and you think of Rome. And we're going to tag Japan in there, too, because they're all kind of the very um, visible forms of empire and imperialism, where it's just expansionism and taking over land. And while other countries do that, including the U.S., which is going to be the large focus of next week, uh, they don't like to call themselves imperialism. So more covert and pseudo-imperialism is going to be our focus next week. Uh, but yeah, uh, you want to get started on talking about Rome, Katie? Um, yeah, so I, after doing some research, um, a lot of information that has come about imperialism in Rome has been related to how the imperialism that, you know, the Romans you know, placed on other countries, um, it wasn't just about taking land, but also spreading their ideology. So... A primary example of imperialism with Rome um, is Rome's involvement in Africa, which began with a conflict over power in Sicily. Um, the island lay um, between Italy and Africa, and so it became a um, hotspot and top reasoning for Rome's first conflict with a um, North African city called um, Carthage. Um, and that was a growing naval power in the 3rd century BCE. So, essentially, the imperialism became focused on ideology because percept Roman perceptions um, of Carthaginian culture... What? Oh, uh, Carthaginian. Carthaginian, sorry. Um, of Carthaginian culture... Um, increased feelings of active hostility um, for the African city. And so part of that stemmed from um, cultural differences as well as political. Um, essentially, the Romans believed that um, the... Say it again, Sam, I'm sorry. Carthaginians. Carthaginians. So um, the Romans believed that the Carthaginians practiced human sacrifice as part of their religious observances. And so they, they were in disagreement about that. And th this conflict eventually um, became more you know, mythical. Um, 
and many, many um, adaptations of this conflict arose with the um, famous opera Dido and Aeneas that explains this conflict. So you can see how this imperialism has also been traced into a more mainstream or more um, cultural adaptations as well. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with like the story of Aeneas, especially where the the story of Aeneas was written by Virgil in the time of um, Augustus, who was the first real emperor of Rome. Obviously, Caesar had a very you know imperial attitude, but he was kind of the transition. But Virgil wrote for Augustus. It's kind of an allegory for Augustus, but Aeneas who at a time when Rome was a, a, a thought and had just been a republic for 700 years, now they're taking what was a real war, the Punic Wars against Hannibal and Hamilcar Barca. Um, they took it and they made it into Dido, who was this African queen that Aeneas had a star-crossed love story with and made it very, like, this, you know, they, they made the city of Carthage, which was a real enemy of Rome originally, kind of became this stepping stone for Aeneas, who is himself the symbol of, like, the birth of Rome. So it's just like, yeah, I think to add on to what you were saying, it's definitely the assimilation of the culture. Yeah, I and to, to almost add on to that, I think that that opera, which has, you know, become very well known, um, that opera, I feel, mirrors the effects of imperialism, not only culturally, but you know, geographically as well, and all different aspects of imperialism, because you, in that opera, you can see um, Dido's frustration um, with the situation that she was put in, and you can almost argue that that is a mirrored effect um, of the actual effects imperialism has on countries. Um, which I think is very interesting, and that's why, you know, cultural adaptations, when they are made into operas or they, if they're made into entertainment, if they're done correctly, um, they actually do mimic, you know, real-life scenarios and they, you know, portray the message that is is accurate to history. If I'm being honest, I definitely I definitely need to do a little more research on the opera because I know the the original work is the the Aeneid, which is a poem written by Virgil. But is the opera just like is it a direct um, like a direct representation of the Aeneid, or is it kind of just like re reimagined? I don't really know much about it. I think that parts of it are reimagined, but I think for the most part it would stay true to you know this the the actual history. Um, I do know that one major you know, musical piece in that opera is um, Dido's Lament. Mm -hmm. And she she goes off about how, you know, her situation with Aeneas, you know, it's deteriorated so much and she's kind of like lost all hope. Um, so that's kind of the, the part of the opera that I was mentioning that, you know, could have some real life application in terms of imperialism. I would think that it stays true to the story. I'm not entirely sure i'm sure parts of it have been reimagined just for the sake of entertainment mm -hmm. um purposes but the the story would be up i guess up to musical interpretation um i don't want to get too off topic but if you have you know 
an opera or a musical or whatever you know entertainment it is the the person who creates that has their own interpretation of the events that have happened and so they they translate their interpretation into the music so while it could be true to the story it's also through the lens of the the person who created it mm-hmm. and that that could be quite not quite different but maybe somewhat different than just the actual facts being presented themselves that makes sense but yeah so continue with rome and to get off the the aeneas uh angle i know we went on a little bit of a tangent there but that's kind of what this podcast is uh but um to continue with rome uh the expansion that they did was very much in my opinion a continuation of the expansion that happened with greece where you have alexander the great who expands his empire all the way to india and he goes and then the minute he stops the minute he dies tragically of disease um it fragments and in a very brief period of time he spread hellenic and greek culture throughout a large part of the known world at the time and the romans kind of picked up that torch and said we're going to do something similar but it's not going to be it's going to be still very hellenized because rome was very hellenized and i think that's kind of the when you hear the term western civilization that's kind of just the it's the path of greek culture becoming roman culture becoming european culture but then it's the romans saying okay we're now going to invade gaul which gaul would be most of mainland europe at the time and you know their main struggle would be you know as they they had a pretty easy time taking over gaul that they would have trouble taking over the germanic lands which you can take a wild guess who lived in the germanic lands uh but and then britain would be another a whole other deal that caesar really focused on at the end once he conquered gaul but it's interesting how we think of europe now as the source of imperialism where if you go far enough back in time and you see you you go to rome europe had to be conquered itself there you know and that concept of europe being imperialized has kind of gone away at this point because we don't really think of you know like germany isn't just going to go out and say yeah italy's mine now they're not going to do that now but back then yes totally would do that Back then, even in Napoleon's times, in the 1800s, you have him trying to really take over Europe. But then, once you go past that, you start to see expansionism into Africa, into Asia, especially into the New World. And that's when imperialism shifts from being in Rome, where it's being kind of taking over what Alexander tried to get, which... Napoleon, it's, you know, it's not a hidden fact that Napoleon did idolize Alexander the Great. So even, you know, millennia after, he did have a major influence. But it goes from taking over the imperial, the first major shift of what I'm trying to say is the first major shift of what imperialism is, is going from the, oh, world domination and a point where the world was Europe to now world domination to a point where they're okay with, you know, being buddy-buddy with Europe, with, like, the rest of Europe, because the countries have kind of fragmented at this point. But now they're going to compete with the rest of Europe that they see as equals for the rest of the so-called, you know, minority 
what's what's the word for the rest of the so-called let the lesser that they they perceive the lesser part of the world where they had you know just native populations so that's this that's the shift from rome to i think britain which would be the next focus that we're going to talk about right okay um so i can talk a little bit about britain i think that sam you're absolutely you know right on like the once these europe was you know imperialized and the countries were viewed as like level playing fields i guess um to to kind of extend what you were saying um britain turned to the areas around them geographically um which would be the countries of ireland scotland wales is attached to england but they have a very um you know tight-knit history they were imperialized very early on yeah Um, yeah so it's you you start to see a situation where you turn to people who are who are geographically close to you to to make sure that your your power and your culture is being you know reflected i guess appropriately in the in the eyes of the english um so throughout um england's history you see a conflict primarily with the irish there are also problems with the scottish but eventually you know the scottish and the you know british they find or the scottish and the english they find a sort of agree- agreement and you then see the united kingdom as it is today um however I- ireland has always been a problem because there are very large differences in culture and a main theme that you could see toward the english treatment toward the irish is that they believe that the irish um, culture and irish beliefs are less than their own so that was manifested in the battle over religion um england was primarily anglican and the irish at the time were very devout catholics um and so that difference in religion was very difficult to overcome also combined with the fact that the english did have some some strongholds in ireland early on relatively early on um so the the english had a presence in ireland and so the mixing of those religions it just wasn't it wasn't clean you know and so that caused um, many issues because the irish were expected to abandon their their culture to assimilate to the to the english ways or the english in a different kind of way would just not acknowledge not acknowledge the irish as their equals at all and would say you stick to your inferior culture let's say and and we will stick to ours and keep it separate um and so over time like at the same time they rejected the idea um that they were similar even though they expected them to abandon you know certain aspects of their culture um i don't know if you want to add to that i don't want to ramble on too much uh, um but I, it's basically oh, yeah no, no, no you, you can keep going oh no, i'm good okay you, so, you add what you want so i'd like to expand on the uh the religion aspect because i think as we as we focus as we go into that second phase of imperialism I was talking about, I think Ireland is a great first example because you see 
you know, it's it's not too far from the mainland, but it's still very different from. I mean, Britain isn't the mainland either, but it's the point. It's it's not on the same land, um, but it's <clears throat> it's this idea of religion almost as an excuse to just push forward, and every country just starts doing this. So you have Spain, aggressive Catholicism into the New World. You have France, same thing. You have um, England with aggressive Anglicanism into the New World, into Ireland, into Scotland. Well, that's different. But um, so this this idea of religion as an excuse to colonize just it, it's the it's the reason that we have all this. I think Africa goes untouched for a while, so Africa's different. But because Africa is more of a politics as the excuse to colonize, but the entire American continent, well, continents depending on how you look at it, is is just these European countries. Once they've all decided they're going to stop trying to take each other over, even though the twentieth century brings that back, they're going to say, "Okay, yeah, let's you know take over all the other land that we can," and obviously religion is the driving force for that as you have all these missionary trips that are just trying to recruit people you have all of these you know small like pilgrims are a great example where they were in massachusetts and they were purely leaving for religious reasons and they felt that this new world which was supposed to be empty from europeans which it was but obviously it wasn't really empty uh, they thought it was just their God-given right to take it because, as I said, God-given, it was their excuse. Yeah, I would like to, like, I agree with everything you just said. Um, I would like to transition into the bigger picture of, um, bigger picture of how how this conflict with religion between England and Ireland really resulted in the end of the of the english empire there are a lot of things that contribute to the end of this the english empire the british empire however you want to say it um but the one thing that i think played to england's detriment was that the one reason that ireland did not succeed in joining england and scotland for a union was because the the Catholics, when they, you know, were initially up for the idea of creating a union, they were denied um, the right to vote and they were denied political, um, they were denied a political voice within that, that union. The only way that they would agree to a union with England and Scotland was if they had that political power. So they were denied that political power, so the, the union did not work. Um, and so that ultimately led to England playing like more more steps to gain power. And you see like modern day, um, like with Brexit, you see a desire to keep the the land and the control that they still have, which is ultimately a test to how way back long ago they were trying to get the Irish to join the union, but now Brexit's an effort to keep everything the way it is, not forcing people to join, but to keep it 
as it is so that further detriment doesn't happen to Britain as it exists. Um, so I think that's interesting how their, their cause of imperialism led to the downfall of the empire. Or it was one of the reasons that led to the downfall. That is interesting. So do you want to go into um, the, we have a, we have kind of a second phase for Britain, or do you want to go into the third country before we come back? Because I feel like it might be better to, because chronologically the third one would come first. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. All right, cool. So the third country that we want to talk about uh, with kind of, I'm going to call stereotypical imperialism, just because I don't really have a better word for it, is Japan. Because Japan, uh, while it is, it's a very unique case because it's imperialism, you know, if you look at Rome, Rome's empire lasted for centuries. Britain's empire lasted for centuries. Japan's empire lasted for a century at best. I, I would say its influence was less, definitely less than that. But I guess in, I mean, I shouldn't, okay, I, I gotta, I gotta start back. The, jet, the idea of an emperor in Japan is millennia old. Not talking about that. When I say when I say Japan, I'm talking more about the modern uh, 18th, uh, 1800s, 1900s Japan and the Meiji Restoration. Because, yes, the concept of an emperor in Japan, very old, but Japan's emergence onto the world stage and Europe's efforts to stop that emergence are what I think is relevant to this conversation. So... When you look at Japan in uh, 1868 or before 1868, they are still in period. They are still in a feudal society, and this is actually really interesting because you see Japan in feudal society in in 1868 or before 1868, and you see Russia in feudal society for a long time. They're kind of the last two countries that would be big players in the 20th century that were in feudal in feudalism for way longer than the others. If you see you know, I think France and Britain are great examples where feudalism was the name of the game for a very long time. You had lords, you had vassals, you had fiefs, you had serfs, all that kind of stuff. But then this big, long phase of uh, absolutism comes in. And you have absolutism in Britain, you have absolutism in France, you have it in Spain. And... Japan didn't really get that, and neither did Russia, where Russia got just the Tsar, who really, you could argue, was more feudal than, than absolute. Uh, and then the Tsar, you know, both, both Japan and, and Russia both had to speed up their industrialization process. And because they were in feudalism, and feudalism doesn't, isn't a system that promotes any real innovation, uh, they had to go very quickly to catch up in the race while Britain and France and all those other countries and even the U.S. kind of were already there and just kind of switched into, into industrialization mode. So then Japan, to go back to them, before 1868 are this feudal society that is old-fashioned, going by the old ways. They still had samurai at the time. If you think about it, put it into perspective – Japan had a samurai class in the mid-1850s while the U.S. was fighting the Civil War. And of course, uh, the, I'm not saying the U.S. is, you know, gets off on this one and our, the U.S. Is, the, is, you know, so much better. Because obviously, we still had slaves at this point. Uh, 
So again, another very old-fashioned thing, but the U.S. was, for some, for the, purely the reason that it was a westernized country, invited to the table. Now, Japan, uh, with the Meiji, the Meiji, the uh, Meiji Emperor, which Meiji means enlightened rule, um, he gets rid of the concept of the this feudal shogunate. Uh, and the empire, the emperor is consolidated. The power of the emperor is consolidated at the top once more. So you have this emperor quickly and effectively in, uh, industrializes. And from this point until about 1894, they are growing and getting more modern and more modern and more modern. And then the real big driving force for Japan as a modern empire comes into play, and that's the foreign policy of Japan. So they fight a war with China for Taiwan, or the island that would become Taiwan, because Taiwan is, you know, wouldn't exist until Mao's time, uh, for the island of Taiwan and Korea. And they win. And this is a big wake-up call for Europe, because Europe, as I said earlier, you know, they, they all kind of shook hands and decided that you know, we're not going to try to conquer each other. We're going to conquer the rest of the world. And with that handshake that they have, they don't really expect any other big power to come from anywhere but Europe. But now they start to see, you know, China, which at this point was, you know, being held down by the forces of Europe. You know, if you know anything about the Opium Wars, basically Britain was using China Basically, Britain was dumping a very bad habit on China and then exploiting it to get all of their profits and all of their resources. And Japan comes in and says, we don't want that to happen to us, so we're not going to really talk to the West. But we're also going to take from China because that's what the West is doing. So Europe sees Japan and they're like, wait a second, they're doing what we're doing, but we don't want anybody else to do what we're doing. So they suppress Japan and they they go against them it's France Russia and Germany as the big 3 that go against them which i find hilarious because this is the late 1800s and not 20 years later two of those countries would be against the other one so <sighs> europe really can agree on things if it's suppressing the rest of the world but um japan nonetheless succeeds uh in 1904 by defeating russia and becoming a world power uh, <clears throat> and gaining land in East Asia uh, that Russia previously had. So you have Japan now as this, you know, they have a very strong military. They have a very, you know, it's a very modern economy as opposed to there's a, there's a famous picture of a, a meeting between the leaders of China and the leaders of Japan where the emperor of Japan has a suit and a tie on and looks very, you know, He's dressed in a very Western style, and then the Empress of China is dressed in a very traditional garb. And it really is this, this idea of Japan modernizing incredibly quickly just so that they can have a seat at the table. And then you have Europe not wanting to give them a seat at the table. And that, of course, ends up leading to <clears throat> a ton of expansionism 
from Japan, coming from Japan, which then ends up leading to the bombing of Pearl Harbor and World War II. But yeah, sorry if that was a long little like rant, but yeah, that's my that's my Japan spiel. Yeah, no, that's cool. I think that you're absolutely right that Japan wanted to take like a backseat when it came to to involvement with the West because they saw what they were doing to China um, in the Opium Wars. And so I think I think it's kind of funny that that Europe said, hey, you're doing the same thing that we're doing. Like they were paying hyper attention to Japan when Japan thought that, you know, being away from the, you know, the open um, scene would cause the attention to shift away from them. But I guess it just speaks to to Europe's attentive nature when it comes to the rest of the world. Um, you would think that they would you know, overlook Japan because Japan wasn't, you know, in the forefront and they were purposefully out of the forefront. Um, I just think that's something interesting and that's my little add-on. Um, but but moving chronologically forward, uh, we're going to return to, um, we're going to return back to Britain, even though Britain, you know, did play a role in imperialism before that as well, still. Um, but in the 1950s, 40s, 50s, 60s that that time period um britain started losing ground in the middle east um so during that time one of the major events that happened was britain was wrestling with iran over um control of the anglo iranian oil company essentially the people of iran were producing this oil that was very lucrative to the rest of the world but the conditions that they were living in were terrible. And so they were like, we want to gain control of this oil company. It's our territory. We, we want to establish that it's our oil. We should be the sole ones reaping the, or reaping the um, benefits of this, these profits. And so Britain being Britain, they were like, we are not going to agree to that. We we purchased part of this company back in 1901. We are not just going to drop it. So essentially, um, Britain teamed up with the United States um, to start a coup um, in Iran with the um, Shah of Iran mm-hmm. at the time. And they used this coup to eventually overthrow um, Mosaddegh, who, is, who was the um, not official leader of Iran, but he was the political, you know, figure of Iran. Um, so Mosaddegh was a very popular leader. He was seen as very charismatic. He, um, he never backed down from what he believed was right for, um, Iran, which is a trait that you would like to see in every leader in your country. You know, they don't back down for the good of your, you know, territory. Um, and so he was well liked by the Iranian citizens. And so essentially this coup destroyed the stability in Iran for years to come. And it is one of the reasons why there are problems that can be traced in Iran to modern day. Um, some would argue that this event um, catapulted the U.S.'s interest in oil. And it also fuels their desire to control countries um, culture. Um, and so that kind of, the fight for oil is always something that, you know, 
appeals to the United States and pulls the United States into the Middle East. That's, you know, the notorious fight. Um, one of the fights that happens with the U.S. and that territory. Um, but this was the the main force. You see Britain pulling in another Western power to get their their shared goal accomplished. And oh, sorry. Oh, you can you can insert. Um, I just want to quickly add that this is how modern day kind of happens. Like imperialism is so interesting and so important because it sh quite literally shapes the modern world. So even in an event that happened a hundred years ago, Britain, you know, founding, not founding, but purchasing oil in Iran, that event that happened a hundred years ago, it led to problems that exist to the present day mm -hmm. because of imperialism, which I think is super cool. And that's why we're talking about it, but you can add whatever you want, Sam. But, you know, I definitely think that Iran, uh, you know, Britain starting it as an empire, but that bringing in of the U.S. is very telling, especially the middle of the 20th century was was the U.S.'s imperialism at its height. And we're definitely going to talk about, we're probably going to come back to Iran next week because the U.S. really did, you know, even after that. Where I think it's also important to mention with Mosaddegh that they, um, they this, the coup that they staged with the Shah Mosaddegh had replaced the Shah kind of as the important political leader in so it wasn't like it wasn't like the Shah was this new figure he had been there before and then Mosaddegh came and then the Shah came back yes and it's interesting because you know you said that Britain had that you know decade old interest with the oil they had already had an alliance with the Shah who was a horrible person to the uh people of Iran uh and then of course they get this this new leader and then they, the you know the West says nope we're gonna put the Shah back and then of course what would happen in the eighties is the Shah would be ousted and the Ayatollah would come in which his his direct successor the new Ayatollah uh, Khomeini as opposed to Khomeini uh, is still in power as we speak but um yeah I think. That just that entire process of the U.S. saying, yeah, you have a leader you like now, but it's not the leader we like, is something we're going to see a ton of next week. We're going to see it all with the banana republics of South America. We're going to see it in um, <clears throat> a lot in the Middle East, uh, you know, Hussein, you know, us getting rid of Saddam Hussein, us getting rid of us aiding and getting rid of Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. Um, so a lot of these... A lot of these kind of we don't like. I mean, Saddam Hussein's a little different, so I don't really want to bring him into that same category. But we still went after him kind of as an excuse for oil, so it does fall into the same category. I don't know. I'll I'll ask you your opinion on that next week. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's. Yeah. I think this is actually kind of a good place to stop for part one because we're already kind of segueing into part two. But do you have anything else to say? Um, no, I think that we covered some good ground. I think that the main takeaway is that, you know, imperialism started with more religious and more cultural you know, aspects. But as you move into modern time, it most certainly becomes more political. Um, so that that shift is definitely apparent. Um, I think that's a great way to summarize it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. I think it definitely goes from religious to political, and it also just goes to you know a a forming of kind of this this West Club or the, the Western clique of countries mm-hmm. that don't want anyone else to join it. And I think you know you even see it with the the UN. The UN, you know, something as simple as the UN, where it's supposed to be this incredibly peaceful organization that's supposed to be helping everybody, but there's a Security Council with a bunch of countries on it that are just kind of always there. And then you start to see stuff like that, which is very much a superiority trying to be established by the big powers of the world. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that overall, it there there has, and we'll talk about it more, more next week, but we will also begin to see a merge of cultural and political imperialism within own countries as well. Like you think that it's mostly one country against another country, but you can see ideas of imperialism exist within, you know, one country or another country, whatever it is. And it makes that country even more divided because you're placing those ideas into your into your policies and stuff like that. So it's very interesting to see like a shift also be from, you know, having one country against another country to taking those ideals that would work in those situations and applying them to domestic you know, policies as well is very interesting. So yeah. one thing that I do want to cover before we end that I realized that we just kind of skipped over that we it definitely, I, th- I kind of thought it would fit it more into part two, but really I think now with the way we've taken this episode, it'll probably work better in part one is a scramble for Africa just in general. Yes. Where if you look at the scramble for Africa, you know, it's it's basically the same thing that happened to the New World a century before, but you see these horrible atrocities committed by every European country. It seems like, you know, you have Belgian, uh, you know, Billy Joel sings about Belgians in the Congo. Uh, you have the Belgian king cutting off the hand of people that couldn't bring him enough water, uh, enough rubber. You have, obviously, the, the Dutch down south. Um... We all know how that ended up with apartheid. We have uh, a bunch of British meddling in the north. And they really do, you know, I think everybody who's been through public school or really any high school in the U.S., and I'm not sure what education looks like in the rest of the world, but I'm sure it's similar, has probably seen that political cartoon of a bunch of different white guys carving up a cake that says Africa. And that's really what he is. They just, you know, they were like, okay, this is this is all ours for the taking because we feel so superior. Um, who gets what? Yeah, I agree. I think an, another important part of the scramble for Africa as well is that when they were carving up territories, they created their own boundaries for what they thought the country should be. So they created their own territories, their own boundaries. Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening is they created what is called superimposed boundaries in which they their boundaries interfered with the natural cultural boundaries of that territory which created further disconnect with within um people within that country so i think them them creating these boundaries without any consideration of the natural boundaries that already existed between groups of people um is also something to consider, but I think it's a lot less talked about. Yeah, that's very true. I think, you know, you see in Europe, 
the the different tribes, as you would say, the different countries, they definitely were allowed to form their own boundaries because they were making it themselves. Meanwhile, in Africa, the Europeans were like, oh, we can we can copy that system, but we're going to do it for them. And, of course, white man's burden comes into play here where they're, you know, are they doing it out of the goodness of their own heart? Probably not, but yet again, the white man's burden is kind of a, it's kind of a transition where you go from this, this religious, this religious example, and there were plenty of missionaries in Africa, but this religious excuse to colonize for, you know, it's the, religious really is, any religious excuse to colonize is really just trying to play on the morals of something. And then the white man's burden is also playing on the morals, so it's not fully to the, you know, the political expansionism that we talked about, but it's kind of in the middle of saying, oh, we, the people that are more fortunate and are more superior, really, as, as they thought, with the fake science that they came up with, uh, it, is our, it is our duty to, you know, tell these quote-unquote savages how to live, which, of course, would be very wrong, and of course, ended up you know, putting us in the position that we are today. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, religion being justified for, or being a justification for imperialism really allowed countries to dig into the fact that they, quote, and it's not even a fact, it's an opinion, that they were the superior culture because they thought that people who didn't practice the same religion as them were, you know, uncivilized. Um, and so that justification just allowed them to dig deeper into um, the imperialism and the conquering of that territory, um, which is very interesting. So, but yeah, I think uh, I think we said all we have to say today. Uh, I can't wait to I can't wait to delve into this again next week. Yeah, I think talking about the U.S. will put things into a lot more perspective. I think for the most part, we tried to stay more toward other countries, which is good because yeah. um, we talk about the U.S. a lot on here. So I'm happy we got to talk about some other countries this episode. Yeah, me too. And uh, definitely next next episode, while we will have a U.S. focus and a U.S. bend, there will be other topics, especially the countries that the U.S. meddled with. But uh, yeah, no, we'll, I think next week will be an equally interesting episode. So yeah, uh, hope you guys all have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. And uh, that's it for today. Oh,